Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everybody. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. So today on the show, we are going to discuss human trafficking and then also the commercial sexual exploitation of children. Um, we're going to begin with some facts. We're going to talk about the grooming and the control that is exerted and the techniques that are used to lure uh, young people in particular, but all people into this kind of situation, as well as then moving into warning signs, sort of what to pick up in people that you know that might be clues that they've become involved in something um, where they're being trafficked or at risk for being trafficked, and then some of the protective factors that actually help, you know? Yep. Does that sound good, Dr. That, Barrett? That sounds lovely. All right, so let's do that. So let, let me just start with some facts, and I know you have facts, too. So I've got we'll just, lots of facts. We'll just talk. You're talking about on this topic? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> She's got so many facts. So many facts. I'm actually a book of, like, useless information. <laughs> That's why you do the trivia on uh, Shrink Chat. Sometimes I just know things. I'm like, why do I know that? Yeah. You know, just random facts. That's like me with media, like movies and TV and stuff. It's like, oh, I've seen that. That, that." I'm like, you know why that is? People are like, no. Do you want to know? No. I'm going to tell you. Yeah, because I'm a smarty pants. All right. I just know for some reason (laughs) a stupid piece of information. Okay, anyway. Back to human trafficking. Okay. Okay. So, so let's just start with some ground rule type information. Um, human trafficking is a, you may not know this, but it's a multi-billion dollar a year industry, according to the state office of the attorney general, which is where I got this information. Oh, some, some of this information. $150 billion global industry is what I have. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, the internal labor organization estimates that there's 40.3 million victims of human trafficking globally. So that's 40 million people. And that's an estimate. Mm-hmm. Um, now, let's just say also that it's human trafficking is apparently, according to the Office of the uh, Attorney General, the second most profitable criminal enterprise, with drug trafficking being number one and people trafficking yeah. being number two. So a couple of things just to add to that would be um, in this, in our country – the number one state is California. The number two state is Texas. Part of that, I'm sure, is size. Um, and and 77% of the victims are in their countries of residence versus the belief that they're moved or on vacation, like the movie Taken, that the major- 77% are actually right in the area that they live. Yeah, I was looking at that... Um- Three of the nation's 13 high-intensity areas are actually in California, mm-hmm. and that's uh, L.A., San Francisco, and San Diego. Is Detroit on there? I know Detroit has a lot. I was just looking at California. Yeah, Detroit, um, they busted a really big one last year that had been going on since the 70s. So, so just so we're clear, human trafficking, uh, it's the international crime against people, And it includes sex trafficking, forced labor, bonded labor, involuntary domestic servitude, organ harvesting, 
child soldier recruitment and migrant laborers. So it, it encompasses a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Most of my knowledge about is about CSEC, is about the commercial sexual exploitation um, of young people. Mm -hmm. So of children. That's the C with the end of CSEC. And so that that's where most of my kind of understanding comes from. But I wanted to make sure we, we mentioned that that it you know the words human trafficking encompasses quite a bit human obviously. trafficking yeah i think um what i focused on a lot for for tonight was the sex trafficking specifically um although yes sex yeah. trafficking is one part of human trafficking but we're definitely seeing a lot of a lot more awareness around sex trafficking yeah the breakdown that i saw from the international labor organization was that um, of the 40 million that I was talking about before, 81% of them are trapped in forced labor. 25% mm -hmm. are children and 75% are women and girls. Mm -hmm. So our gender is absolutely part of the targeted sure. demographic. Um, $150 billion industry worldwide. Is that what you said before? That's for sex trafficking. Yeah. Yeah. This says forced labor and human trafficking, so I don't know. I mean, it could lot. all be thrown into one, um, but it's um, it's it's massive. It's just massive. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about who is at risk for this. Um, certainly, you know, we were just that's kind of where I was going, where we were just talking about how. Uh, young women and women in general are mm -hmm. at risk for this. Um, but I also want to mention uh, specifically LGBTQ youth mm -hmm. because I think it's important to mention that um, youth who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning, or any other way that you label yourself and that is included in that LGBTQ, I guess it's like it's non-binary. Yeah community um, there are, because there are high rates of discrimination there's an over representation among our uh, runaway and homeless youth I mean I know that I see that in our a lot in our, end up in yeah in, in our counties um, shelters foster care yeah in LA and Ventura County I see that that's a huge um, it's a preponderance unfortunately of our runaway youth there's harassment there's family rejection violence economic instability a lot of times um, can I add something to that? Of course. There is a an emphasis on um, the hypersexualization within the LGBTQ plus community. So many, I'm a firm believer that people live up to their oppressions. So what we end up seeing are a lot of these kids go onto the street and turn tricks mm -hmm. um, and get pulled into the industry and it becomes sensationalized to them. Um, but they're essentially exploited for, I don't know, they could be... Uh, a young boy who's paid a lot of money to give head to some old white dude who goes home to his wife. I mean, they're just sold into this kind of trade. Yeah. I mean, they, they face, uh, adding to that, they face more frequent profiling, mm -hmm. um, and they receive higher sentences and they're more likely to be prosecuted. Um, because there's a projection that it was a consensual sexual activity. Right. Um, despite their higher rate of victimization. Right. So that's kind of along the lines yeah. of what and you're talking about. And pathologized. They're mentally ill because they're LGBT. Right. Yeah. And they're arrested and detained um, for minor offenses. And right. then 
you know, there's a lack of first responder and caregiver training as well. I just want to mention that, that I, oh my gosh. that there's a lack of training in this area. And I know it's something that's growing and getting better. Uh, and that just needs to have continued attention brought to it. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit about, oh, oh, and I would, I want to throw in there that, uh, mandated reporters, you know, this was part of mandated reporting. Um, the sexual exploitation of any, of in any form is considered, um, abuse. And so any reasonable suspicion of that abuse, which includes, you know, prostitution, um, live performances of sexual conduct, uh, and pornographic images and things like that. Now I know we get into dicey areas with youths, youths sending each other pictures, naked pictures and all that. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately and fortunately, a lot of those things are, are reportable. Mm -hmm. And so we, we get into a very difficult territory Mm -hmm. with um, as therapists and psychologists to figure out what to do there. Mm -hmm. Um, But we wanted to talk a lot actually about how, people get into this, mm-hmm. how people are groomed. Um, some of you might be aware of the domestic violence uh, wheel, for lack of a better word. I, I'm not, I'm losing my language at the moment, but where it's power and control and it's like the honeymoon phase right after and all that. Well, human trafficking or sex trafficking has kind of a similar situation. And we talk a lot on this show about how, victims are what's the word seduced manipulated by uh people who are manipulative and criminal and we talk a lot about that especially in our true crime psychology series Mm -hmm. and in our documentaries so i want to talk a little bit about the power and control that's going on in this type of situation um the first thing i would bring up i mean you know i don't know where you want to go with this but uh, is the intimidation factor so i think part of it is well i know part of it is intimidating someone and so you can imagine someone who is older than you or influential or what have you intimidating you i think it's a combination of the the intimidation or fear mixed Mm -hmm. with that person's ongoing attention and adoration even though it's false yeah on you that Mm -hmm. becomes very seducing so that intimidation in conjunction with perceived love or affection or interest mm-hmm. becomes very confusing to the psyche and, and addicting. Yeah. And then the chaos of it. Right. And this is like, we've talked about trauma bonding on here before. So like the yeah. early stages of the manipulation. Mm-hmm. I mean, and by intimidating, I mean, it could be anything from, you know, branching weapons to, harming people in front of you, mm-hmm. you know, so that if there's an implied, I'm going to harm you, mm-hmm. um, l- lying, you know, right in front of you to anyone who comes around, um, and then threatening you if you say anything, mm-hmm. all that kind of intimidating. Factors. And then on, in another, like five seconds later, it could be how much they value you or how much you're doing for yeah. yourself and this is going to benefit you. It's this really mixed message. Well, and thanking you for being quiet. Yeah. Like, thank you so much. We're really in this together. You know, we really have to keep what we're doing. Yeah. I'm protecting um, you. Yeah, I'm protecting you. And, you know, thank you for your good behavior. <laughs> now get to work. You know, it's, it's very, 
it's sick. It's super sick. I mean, the the average age of the girls who are victimized is 12 to 14. Mm-hmm. So, and the average age for boys is 11 to 13. Mm-hmm. So you just imagine if you know people of that age and the way, you know, when I'm talking about the child exploitation, it's just, it's such a crucial time in, in young, in young life. They're so impressionable. Yes. And, and especially at 13 and 14, they also think they know a lot more than they do. Yeah. So they keep a lot to themselves and they're easily Mm. persuaded and parents don't know anything. And right. Yeah. Well, they're on the cusp of that wanting all of that autonomy and and wanting to be an adult and that, that sort of developmental level of wanting to individuate from a way without having any of the knowledge or any of the frontal lobe to Mm -hmm. make the better decisions. And, and, and they're getting a promise of a better life a lot of times. Yep. You know, that false promise of a better Especially life. Especially if they're foster kids or street kids, um, which is, we're going to talk about a different, later I'm going to talk a little bit about a kid who actually came from a very good family and mm-hmm. it still happens. So these predators are very persuasive and, and seductive. Yeah. And so the people that are at higher risk is not only LGBT youth, but also um, anybody involved in the child welfare system, juvenile justice system or law enforcement, which is the... Um, the cases that I work with predominantly in my work. And so it's something we get specific uh, CSEC training on because a lot of, and we do testing at the beginning of the case that um, is very simple to kind of look at risk factors to see, is this person at risk for CSEC basically Um, living on the street um, experiencing sexual abuse. So this was an interesting thing um, or just a telling thing that, uh, up to 90% of the victims of sex trafficking first were either molested, raped, or sexually assaulted by a family member or a close friend. Mm-hmm. And as high as 90% of female CSEC victims have been sexually abused in their own home. And so we do see a connection between um, being abused or raped or violated in some way and then being susceptible. Re-victimized. I, I want to just segue real quick. It's related to this, but mm-hmm. if those of you did not catch this week's, uh, it, maybe it was last week's 2020, um, they did a, a really great special. Uh, um, Robin, I always forget her last name from, I think, Good Morning America. She's awesome. Oh, she, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, she did the interview for the three women who were um, abducted by Ariel Castro in for 10 years, the man who lived in Cleveland and um, he abducted them and basically made them his sex slaves for 10 or 11 years. And and when the one girl ended up having a baby, when that little girl turned like five or six, that was how they ended up finally, something happened, but she was able to yell to the neighbor. And then they discovered that these women had been in the house for uh, I think close to 12 years, wow. 11 years, maybe he ended up cause he's a fucking coward. He ended up committing suicide in prison after getting life sentence plus a thousand years. Um, yeah. but my point in bringing this up is one of the girls, if not two, mm-hmm. one was a, uh, ran away and, um, left, you know, she grew up in, in terrible conditions. She was literally like making hot dogs on a space heater in her house and it would take four hours to make. They, I mean, it was very, very poor conditions and running away. She had been sexually abused. She was already so just lacked any sort of healthy 
sense of self or ego. Mm -hmm. And then what ends up happening is she runs into him. She's trying to get to her daughter's like social work meeting. Um, and she's on the way and gets lost. She doesn't have a cell phone. She has no money. And she runs into Ariel Castro in the drugstore. And she knew him as one of her good friend's father, but she had never met him. And gets coerced. She's naive. She's re-victimized. And the next thing you know, she's you know, a sex slave for the next 11 years of her life. But she came from everything that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, she. you mentioned several of the things that are on like a high-risk list that we would assess for. Um, so involved in the system, living on the street, living in poverty, those three are there, um, experienced sexual phys physical abuse or neglect, suffering from hunger, subjected to racism or historical oppression, uh, involved with gangs and demonstrating low self-worth or self-esteem. And you mentioned several of those. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a profile of the victim. Yep. Um, and again, we're also going to talk later about that people don't always fit all the pieces of the nope. profile. And there's some obvious pieces of the profile like, you know, being wealthy or not being wealthy that you might think take them out of being at risk, but they that's not true. And, and I know we're going to talk about the predators in a minute, but the, the predators being the narcissist or sociopaths that they are, have this really clever way of being able to look at someone who's a very good victim to them and go, I know exactly what this person needs. Yeah, I think we've talked about that before. They tell you what you need mm -hmm. to hear and they would be. Yep. Um, in particular, sex offenders, um, some of the research that I've read recently because of the show and because of what we talk about on a regular basis and because uh, Dr. Barrett has um, a specialty in that area as far as working with sex offenders is that sex offenders are absolutely, I would say, the most skilled in this area. Oh, man. Like because this many particular... of them are not mentally ill. They're characterologically, you know, these are more personality disordered maniacal manipulative people versus the psychotic sort yeah, of mentally different. disordered once they're medicated they understand what they're doing and have remorse mm -hmm. so yes i would say sex offenders are incredibly skilled at vetting yeah. and picking and grooming and what we were talking about earlier which is the fear in conjunction with i'm going to make you feel so special and that could be from their own father yeah, the thing, what I was reading about was that how law enforcement has, uh, you know, qualitatively and uh, talked a lot in the things that I've been reading and watching about how they, their perspective, and I believe actually it was in the Unbelievable book, we did an episode on Unbelievable, um, that yeah. series, and it was in the book that the law enforcement there's a lot of great information in that book, guys. I can't recommend it enough um, about this field and about this topic. Um, is that their perspective was that working day in and day out on cr uh, with criminals, that the sex offenders were absolutely the most skilled and most manipulative people that they would come in contact there, with. I mean, there's a comment. And when, when you run into other psychologists or um, – mental health professionals who work, it's mostly psychologists that work with sex offenders in certain capacities, sometimes social workers. There is this sort of understanding that they're not going to change, um, that all we are doing is risk management, but their desires, their pathology, 
we're not changing that. We can't. And so it's, there is a lot of cynicism, unfortunately, and fatigue around monitoring these guys. Yeah, I would imagine there's a high burnout wanting to change populations in your work because it's, it's um, I, I would imagine in no more population would be more um, common for you to feel uh, um, helpless and... Yeah pointless and like you can't affect any change mm -hmm. you know yeah for me i had to go in into it going my job is to protect the community mm -hmm. not to really do therapy with this person right like, it's very much case management yep. in a way right it's very like cbt oriented that's work. how i yeah. would approach it yeah. yeah and and i think it's interesting because in my work um with the staff that's in my department i'm a clinical supervisor and so many times the conversations i'm having around um different kinds of personality issues in the youth that we see uh and in their parents and in, when you see a lot of the early signs of, well yeah, yeah and it's 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 difficult because i don't want to say to them yeah we're not going to do a whole lot here you know <laughs> i don't want to say that um because I don't have a magic ball. Um, but I do at attempt to manage expectations because mm -hmm. the staff is phenomenal and passionate and they want to help and they want to affect change and, and often get quite frustrated when mm -hmm. um, those things don't change. Right. Certain rigid personality traits aren't aren't going to change. They're pretty static. And so we have a lot of kids who are gang involved, et cetera. And so... You know, you're just, you're just managing expectations, and that's what I sort of think about when you're working with a sex offender population is sure. managing your own expectations is a big part of it. Um, so the power and control, um, I know we want to talk a little bit about the, the predators, the mm -hmm. sex offenders, the, the traffickers mm -hmm. in this. But I, and so I'll just start out by saying I kind of started to say, you know, intimidation is one of the power and control tactics, emotional abuse, so calling names, playing mind games, making them feel guilty or blaming them for their own situation, like you chose this type of thing. Um, isolating them is really important. Oh, yeah. Minimizing, denying, blaming, um, making light of what they're doing, like it's no big deal. Um, blaming them for getting themselves into that situation, which I think, you know, society does that as well. Um, obviously there's a lot of sexual abuse. Rape is used yeah. as a weapon in these sorts of situations. Yeah. Um, and using privilege. So by that, I mean, treating the victim like a slave, mm -hmm. um, defining, uh, gender roles, mm -hmm. subservient women, mm -hmm. is what I'm displaying or mm -hmm. young people in general, boys or girls. Yeah. Uh, you know, hiding and destroying things that would help them get away, like hiding papers or driver's license or passports or mm -hmm. different things like that. These guys hide in plain sight. Yeah. They really do. They sure do. And there, there are a lot of videos on people who have talked about experiences of, here I am sitting in a parking lot at Target, and I'm watching this happen right in front of me. There's three cars, and they're, it's like... You know, and this guy, he came out with this video. It went viral, and he's like, I'm sending this out to all the men out there who have wives and children, and to be alert. This is happening in our counties, in our cities, in America, guys. This is not a foreign country concept. And yeah. there's just become a, a lot more awareness around these guys are hiding in plain sight, and they are 
very much in the United States and very much American. Oh, absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the traffickers and sort of some of their qualities before we um, take a break, because I know that we want to talk a little bit more about the grooming. And I think you have a clip you want to play. I was going to present a, a, a case of uh, a mother okay. and daughter and talk a little bit about the grooming process. But um, let's do that. Yeah. Did you want to present anything else before we break? Um, no, I'm okay. let's. So what we'll do after the break is talk a little bit more about the traffickers, right? And they're kind of their profile. And yeah. You're going to talk about mm -hmm. your case. And I also then want to get into warning signs, which I think will fit yeah. pretty well into some of what you were talking about, about people warning. Like, I think we can shed some light on and what parents can look for some things you mm -hmm. would see. I have yeah. some of that too. And then, uh, and then I've got some protective factors too. So things that actually help yeah. qualities that help protect, uh, people from this kind of thing. So we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hi, we're back. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Uh, we're going to get into, uh, what are we doing? Warning signs. Some warning signs, the case you were going to talk about. The case, and we were going to talk a little bit about um, some of the different profiles of the predators. I wanted, That's right. I wanted to right, right, bring right. this up because this is sort of a segue from the first part, which is um, what what happens sometimes, not, uh, not always, but sometimes, is predators were victims, um, so especially in sex trafficking that we will oftentimes see there are rings of sex traffickers that sometimes will go on for decades. So if you think that a child maybe is 13 or 14 when they're getting groomed or, you know, manipulated into the industry, 10 years later, they're sort of coerced into becoming the predators. And I want to just give some, um, a, pers a perspective to this because it's not just males, okay, which brings right. up a big mental health issue here. Yeah. So, and this goes in line with the manipulation and the sensationalizing and all of this, um, because one of the things I'm about to get into in a moment here is many, many of these victims, it depends on the category. So we're not talking about the runaways or the low SES or that we're talking about people who may actually live at home and have a very good family mm -hmm. uh, are coerced into leaving their homes and being isolated from their families. And, and so what ends up happening is, well, I'll say this since 2004, 20 people, um, this is, this is a study done. You can look it up on an article called the conversation in 2010. So in the study, 20 people were convicted of human trafficking related crimes in Australia. And of these nine have been women with six of them having history of their own victimization. Okay, yeah. So what do we then think about the victimization cycle? Um, is this free will? 
Is it not? And then what does the court do with this kind of sentencing? Because we have two different, we have a mental health piece going on mm-hmm. and we have a legal piece going on. And this is, if you do court work and you're a mental health professional, I was on the phone with an attorney today and she was asking me how uh, this treatment was going. I said, well, I'm going to answer that two ways. I'm going to answer that as a psychologist and then I'm going to answer that as a legal psychologist because there are two different, the court wants you to do one thing, but as a psychologist or a social worker or an MFT, there's a different part of this that the court doesn't understand. And, and what is that, the mental health part? Context. What, context, yeah. Right, that even though the court says, well, this is the law, mm-hmm. okay, well, let me just understand what that law might actually do to this person, and are we considering that at all? Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we don't, in this situation, my case is very different, it's not a sex trafficking case, but in this situation, they definitely need to be penalized because they've, they have victims, Yes, but we also can't ignore the fact that they were his, they have a history of their own victimization, and yeah, how much does that play a part? Because there's really clear um, trafficking laws. I mean, I have them in front of me. Actually, several of the there's federal laws and state laws around vic- victims of you know justice for victims of trafficking, and I don't know. It's really interesting because I imagine, I imagine not being a lawyer that. They, you know, they would enforce the laws that are in place, mm-hmm. whether they were victims or not. That's right. And and, just, and then hopefully there would maybe might be something around treatment that they could get as part of their sentence. You would, you would hope. But I yeah. know that that's not the norm. Yeah. And so um, just to add to this last piece before we move on is, and we talked about this at the beginning of the episode, which predators are masters at um, building these relationships, right? Because they're really good at coming off as trustworthy and caring and uh, meaning well, and and they're going to help this person be the best version of themselves. So what they do then is how these women and children sometimes end up becoming predators is they will offer these women and children money to scout for them. Mm-hmm. And so some of this came up in the R. Kelly documentary as oh, well yeah. around how some of these people, like he... He was not working alone. And how much were these people offered certain promises and money and things to do work for? He was a sex trafficker, R. Kelly. Mm-hmm. And let's just call it what it, what it is. Yeah, he meets the definitions. So, you know, that's oftentimes what the court doesn't understand is these guys have, these victims have been, manipul- been manipulated and now dependent on this income and this life to survive. And so they're manipulated into a life of now you have to, of servitude, basically. Yeah, that's that on that, um, you know, that's the economic abuse that happens, you know, Mm -hmm. of all of the different tactics I was kind of listing before with, you know, isolation, et cetera. There's the economic abuse. It's like they're dependent on, um, well, on their traffickers. I know this came up too with um, who's the guy that recently killed himself in prison who had all those underage Jeffrey Epstein. Yes. Oh, I can't believe I pulled that yes. out. <laughs> and there, there were a couple women who came forward and said, I was one of his victims, but I have tremendous amount of guilt because he got me to scout for him. Yeah. It's um, I think it's part of the manipulation is that I I won't hurt you or I won't do anything to you today. Just, just if you go, go bring me those couple girls you go over get there. Me some. Come on, you know this is fun, but whatever it is, I'll uh-huh. buy you this. I'll take care of you. you yeah. yeah, protection. Absolutely, protection like uh, a gang uh, for sure. So I just wanted to throw that piece in. So. Do we want to play this clip? Because I know that has yeah, to do so with the let grooming me just, process. Let me just introduce this case real quick. So there, there's a two young, two women, mother, daughter. Um, their last names are the Litvaks. 
And Courtney Litvak um, ended up becoming trafficked uh, in her teens, living in Texas, living with a very, very, um, you know, whether they were upper middle class or middle class or whatever, they were completely um, what we would consider a healthy-ish family. They mm-hmm. didn't have any, you know, severe mm-hmm. uh, issues going on financially or mental health-wise. The, the, she had all her needs met. She had a good relationship with her parents. And she ends up becoming a victim of this. Um, but sh- like she will talk about and like her mother talked about, uh, pretty much it comes down to she left on her own accord. Nobody came and put her in cuffs. Nobody threw her in a van and shut the door. And um, Courtney, I'm going I'm to play a three-minute clip here of how she talks about the grooming process. The mother has now started a whole organization around helping parents identify when their kids might be getting caught up in trafficking. And so I want to I want to talk about one piece uh, specifically before we play this clip, which is I'm not sure if it's like this with all human trafficking. I would imagine it would be, but there is a hierarchy <laughs> with the predators, and that is that it's it's rarely one person doing the job, and the most influential person is really the person that has zero contact with the victim. But what we have are five different, four different. Um, people who are working within um, this system for one victim. So you have what's called the spotter, okay, which is the person who's sort of going out and going, we want her. Then we have the recruiter, the person who actually goes out and starts talking to that person, introduces that person to the groomer who starts to do all the seductive work, whether that's sexual or not, and then the pimp, mm-hmm. right? So we have four people and like she'll say, I don't, I don't remember if it's in this clip or not, but she says, I didn't even meet the person who was really behind this. Mm-hmm. And so the question then is, well, the, how did all this happen? Well, this is our biggest um, pitfall right now, you guys, is social media and the way that these predators get in online. They create fake identities to create relationships with the de- desired victim. Um, and then they force uh, this victim to become face to face, which can lead to abduction, or it can lead to just coerce, co- coercing that person to leave on their own. And what she talks about is um, how they really made this to sound desirable. They taught her how to market herself. It made her sound autonomous. And as a 15-year-old kid, it's like, F you parents. I'm going to go do this and make so much money. Plus, she had been assaulted and been a victim. And that uh, she talks about it a little bit. Yeah. Not, not in the clip you're going to play. But, yeah. you know, she what we were talking about, like, risk factors. Yes. And how does a kid who seemingly has an average family get into this? And right. she had actually, you know. Been yep. a, a victim. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but seemingly, if you were look at it from the outside, this is not a foster kid. This no, is not, right. Like yeah. she just she cites that as one of the reasons that was part of yep. her and it's certain, susceptibility, and, right? To it. Because it it it's now ingrained in a way. So we're gonna listen to this, and then I'll talk to, I'll go through what her mother um, labeled as the six stages of of grooming. Okay, go for it. And she um, she talks about the grooming process as a bridge, which I think is really interesting. 
what a main key factor of this grooming stage is, first it's establishing most of the time the relationship over a phone. And you're going to grow to trust this person enough to where you'll allow them to pick you up at night, you will sneak out. This was something that took place in my personal story. I began sneaking out at night. And this was somebody who knew a mutual friend of a mutual friend. So typically somebody who you sit next to in one of your classes. Somebody who you've known since junior high, a familiar face. Somebody who you've heard their name before. That establish, establishes credibility to make you more willing to trust this person who they're repping for and you know they're talking up and saying this is someone who you can trust and I'm going to put you in contact with this person. So it is very well organized and it's very well networked. It is never a one-man show. There are multiple people who go into making this whole system work. And it's so important for people to understand the different parts of the grooming stage but to fully understand the main factor is establishing trust. And a very big focal point of that is them gaining control, slowly but surely, which is like those mental, psychological chains that are not visible on the outside. But over a process and period of time, this mental control is so profound, but at the same time, it can be so subtle to someone who doesn't know what to look for. But once that mental control is established, Physical control can be gained as well. In the grooming process, that is what is, in, is intended for. It is a bridge. You do not get from point A to point Z without any transition or in-between. The grooming process can take months. For some people, it can take weeks. But commonly, a person who is in school, as I was, who had never had experience in this lifestyle before, I wasn't about to be this person who was actually referenced as prude. People knew me as someone I didn't like to cuss. I came a long way since then. But at the time, it was very outlandish, very hard to believe that I could start distributing the behaviors I was. But it was because these people invested in me. They took their time, and they slowly broke down those barriers and boundaries to where I myself had not noticed the process in which I had strayed so far and gotten to the end point and not even understood where I had begun from and come so far and just started falling down that path and going into that dark place. She's so articulate. What, what was your reaction when you listened to just what she had to say? Yeah, I watched actually the whole thing, um, mm -hmm. but... It's an interesting I, interview, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think she's really articulate, and she does most of the talking, luckily, <laughs> because yeah. she's really she's really interesting, and um, it, it was in line. She was She didn't say anything that was too out of the ordinary. Like, it was in line with what we, what we know right. as a typical case. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and just because I don't get fixated on them having to have all the qualities, right? The fact that she came from a seemingly mm -hmm. good family, et cetera. Um, I don't, you know, you and I don't necessarily get fixated on that piece. Like, how could it happen? Because she was laying out all of the um, unfortunately typical behavior by a trafficker, right? Yeah. Um, yes, for sure. And I think that's the important piece is we can't put these victims or predators into a box because mm -hmm. they're going to come from all different walks of life. And, and now because of the internet and social media, the easier access, you don't, you no longer have to be a kid on the street to be abducted. Yeah. No, you can be I, in your own home. Absolutely. Um, 
Back to what you were saying about like we can't it it cuts across all you know demographics, age, gender, race, social status for n- not only being a victim but being a trafficker. Uh, I was reading this thing. It said that case studies of people who have sold children uh, include a school bus driver, a military officer on active duty, a probation officer, classmates, or a community leader. Like it literally spans yeah. all the way across your life, um, and so. I mean, it's so, that's why it's so important to know some of the, a lot of the warning signs of if you suspect a child, first of all, you're looking at, are they at high risk? So that's all the stuff we were talking about before. When any kid who is, and I say kid because that could be 12, 11 or 12, it could be nine. It could even be depending on their maturity into their teens. Yeah. We don't want complete, we don't want a child to be unsupervised on social media. And the two most influential and vulnerable apps are Snapchat and Instagram because people have a way in to get information. Yeah. She mentions those, but then the way she gets around that is she got burner phones and used them at school. Right. So, (laughs) so, so that, and that's when, so let me go through these stages because she gets to that place in a, due to a stage where like her, her mother has another interview where she talks about this. So let me, let me just talk about this first. Um, so the six stages of grooming, grooming. So first we have, like, we talked about the spotter and the, the recruiter. So this befriending stage, it's very safe. It's non-threatening. Um, it's, it's normal hanging out with this person who might be another kid, right. And recruited. So it's like, Oh, someone at school who's kind of cool, kind of edgy, right. They befriend them. Um, and then they introduce them to someone who gives them easy access to drugs and alcohol. That's always a shoe in right? That's always going to change somebody's judgment, especially a kid. Then we're going to look at um, the isolation. Once that, that starts to become sensationalized and they become dependent on that, then it's really just easy to start isolating you from your parents, from your peers. This is where friends and parents may start to notice things. And the kid might go, just leave me alone, you know, I, I, you don't know what you're talking about. And they start to see their kid's personality change drastically. And this is what the mom was saying. Like, this was not my daughter. Yeah. Um, I bet. So it separates the child emotionally from familiar loved ones who would not support these changes. And then it moves into desensitization. So the moral compass of the child goes haywire. And we're now we're seeing an entirely different size. And then by the last stage, which is the capitalizing stage, your child is gone. And there's at this point, no matter what you say, the kid's not listening to you. And yeah. so the, mm-hmm. she wants parents to be able to see this stuff in the early stages. But going to that, that burner phone thing you're talking about is this is where it's so hard because she's going to now become attached to these people who are going to go, let me help you lie. Mm -hmm. Let me help you become. And so it gets harder and harder the further she goes down in these stages for anyone to detect what's really going on. (coughs) Well, and I imagine at one point or another, there was a buy-in on her part. Like she was, she was in it. Well, that's what she said. And it was her decision. I I walked out at that point I left and they knew there were only a few months before my 18th birthday. And that once I left, they couldn't do, I mean, it's, it's really helpless for parents. Yeah. But then she also talks about, um, which we'll get into when we talk about protective factors here shortly is that she, she got out of it partially because she had that base good relationship with her family. She wasn't coming from, she, she, she realizes that 
not every kid has that. So a lot of the kids I was right. describing earlier that might be in the system that didn't have a good a value a system beginning and didn't have any self-esteem yeah. are not going to have um, what she had. But she had a she talks about how she like had a memory of what life could be if it was more stable. And so she was able to tap into that mm-hmm. to like journey herself psychologically back to she that had a support headspace. system. Mm-hmm. She had a faith. She had all of that that yeah these kids a lot of times don't have. So I want to just mention like some of the things that we see um, in kids that put my red flag up, which is obviously truancy and running away, but that can be a lot of things. Uh, Gang involvement, which can also be a lot of things. Uh, Seeming disoriented or drugged um, really regularly because often traffickers keep the kids even, you know, when they go to school and are out of their care, like in the beginning, um, they'll keep them sedated or drugged so that they don't, make uh quick decisions during the day to stop doing mm-hmm. what they're supposed to be doing according to the trafficker um inappropriate clothing for the weather or situation uh, which also can be a lot of things i i often see that with you know kids who have eating disorders or kids Cut, who are cutting yeah. um, but that's another thing that we see is mutilations They'll often start to mutilate their bodies, which, I mean, you you and I could interpret that as like a psychic trauma of their bodies not being their own and being used mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, sometimes we see stunted growth, but again, that can be abusive situations. But if you happen to know they're in the care of a healthy caregiver, mm-hmm. but you're still seeing neglect signs, you mm-hmm. know, not eating and stunted growth and different things like that. So burns, scars, um, tattoos, carvings, brandings, the way that the body image gets distorted in this kind of work, you often see a lot of that. Um, an older or controlling boyfriend or friend, which is kind of an obvious one, but sometimes we don't, we think that's kind of like, oh, they'll grow out of it. Some people kind of talk that away. And we don't question who else is involved in that relationship. (laughs) Exactly. Like they think, oh, well, he's just a phase and he's kind of a jerk, but you know, don't know who he's linked to. Yeah. You don't know where he's bringing her Mm -hmm. or him every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, withdrawn, depressed, fearful, crying, uh, sudden change of attire or behavior processions. Um, a lot of times what I'll hear is scripted answers. So, so like inconsistent stories, you know, when someone tells you a story, I mean, this is typical of teenagers many times, but when they're lying is they, what you were mentioning is like, they won't talk to you or they can't talk to you or look at you when they're talking. But then also sometimes they'll have inconsistent stories, but they'll have stories that are kind of scripted like, like where deliberate they're, like where they're yeah it's too it's too put together but it's also sometimes they'll forget a part of it and then if you're really listening you'll it won't track yeah um or they can't elaborate on something that goes off the script you you ask a, a deep question for something and they can't or they get angry and storm out or what have you right. but that's mostly because they don't have an answer for that's you right. and they're they're throwing up a subterfuge yep. to um now, again, you can see that in, you know, maybe it's useful for you to know that that's, you know, when people are lying, that that's often what happens. They've they've gotten a story, but this is often they're getting stories from their captors or their yeah. traffickers, right? Um, clumps of makeup over bruising because they're getting abused mm-hmm. um, or hit. Um, 
sometimes by the people they're sold to, but often by the traffickers, just as you would see in sort of a, a pimp situation, a prostitution, because these are prostitution often situations. Mm-hmm. Motel room cards, escort service cards, com- condoms, um, large amounts of cash, sometimes gift cards. Sometimes they'll get paid in gift cards instead of mm, cash. Can't be tracked. Yeah. And so that's just an easier. And then, of course, being like malnourished, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, the scary thing, I I was thinking about this, the scary thing sometimes is the, so you're talking about this young woman who turned 18 and then, you know, she was gone, Mm -hmm. right? And then I imagine sort of what kind of situation she was living in because I think the common living conditions and work conditions that they're in are, are pretty terrible. I mean, they're not free to come or go, um... They're fearful, anxious, depressed, you know, whatever the symptoms are. There, There's a lot of Stockholm syndrome, which for sure we were talking about yeah. before. That's a, that's what a lot of it is. I think that it's a common, so it's like, what are the byproducts? So obviously PTSD is a byproduct of this. Um, Stockholm syndrome is obviously a by or trauma bonds. I think we've used that here mm-hmm. on the show before. You know, anxiety disorder, self-harming is what I was talking about with like burning cutting and tattooing and, themselves yeah. and cutting. and Shame, a lot of trauma shame. Absolutely. And yeah. survivor guilt too. Yes. Um, if they survive the situation... Um, dissociation which is dissociation absolutely trauma sleep disorders i mean conduct disorder which is kind of what you were talking about as far as like the abuser becomes the the trafficked becomes the trafficker yeah and it's the same sort of abuse cycle that we see you know the when abusers grow up and i think um you know I, i mean Sleeping is obviously a problem, but you know, I, I there's also an ADHD factor uh-huh. actually that comes along. Well, I with think this. a lot of people don't realize that ADHD is an injury; it's a trauma. Yeah, actually. they think it's an uh, you're born with it kind of. Yeah, thing. It's, <laughs> it's actually can be quite environmental. Um, some of the physical effects for people who have been sex trafficked, you're going to see eating disorder, starvation. Um, beatings, rape, gang rape, um, a lot of uh, gynecologic health problems, STIs, menstrual pain, miscarriages, forced abortions. So it's not a hygiene. There's not hygiene either. You know, 12-year-old girl going through all of that. Yeah, I mean, they're tired. The hygiene is poor. They're not sleeping. They're malnourished. So it's it's going to be all over them. I mean, you're just, it's, you, you won't necessarily, a person in life isn't necessarily going to say, I suspect sex trafficking when they see some um, like uh, list of these kinds of things. They're not necessarily going to think that, but I think that's one of the reasons why we want to talk about it is because maybe you should, you know, that it's more common than, I mean, it happens in middle-class neighborhoods. It mm. happens in um, upper-class neighborhoods, and it happens in um, socioeconomically poor neighborhoods. So it does happen um, across the board. Yeah. And, it hap- you know, this girl that you're talking about had a friend, yeah. and that friend introduced her to his friend, mm-hmm. and... Drugs and alcohol and so were introduced, and she had she was vulnerable because of her recent trauma. Yeah, and there we go. Yep, <coughs> there's always a story. <coughs> yeah, absolutely. Excuse me for coughing. Um, I wanted to talk about some protective factors as a way to wrap this part up, okay. um, just so that we can look at 
like what are the top protective factors that we can build a foundation in families um, that could help, uh, you know, reject their ability to go down this road? Because there is a certain amount of, in the cases we're specifically mostly talking about today, there is a part where they're being manipulated into the situation. Uh, now I know a, around the world and across the globe, there are lots of situations where there isn't a choice given and that there is, um, that people are stolen basically from their lives and put into situations. And we are not specifically talking about that. Um, so one of the protective factors would be parents' resilience. Um, you know, there's a, obviously a lot of stress in, in parenting, but the ability to constructively cope and then bounce back from situations or like creatively solving problems or building trusting relationships or having a positive attitude and having your kid have some of these symptoms or some of the things that this, that you were talking about with this young woman, um, and then being able to have that resilience to keep going and to not give up on a kid who's using or cutting or is gone for long periods of time or that you don't trust is lying or manipulating you. I mean, parent resilience is huge. So if you think about the mom from this situation and her ability to be resilient and go back into this situation with an older daughter who I'm sure had lied and betrayed her on multiple occasions, um, that resilience was key. Mom worked in the criminal justice system, particularly juvenile, but she mm. had said in her interview, it's interesting because I've, I've worked in the juvenile system for so long, but never in sex trafficking. So mm -hmm. it really blindsided her. But she also, I think, had an understanding around juvenile behavior and crime. And, and so she probably had a lot more education and tolerance and I don't yeah. know. She's yeah, just oh, well I'm sure she probably did. Yeah. yeah. No. And so one of the other protective factors is like social and emotional competence of the children so, and that's obviously going to come a lot from the parenting and the parent caring for the child right so it's like the child's ability to interact positively with others and to self-regulate and to communicate um, and what I heard in the young woman's interview is that she's very verbally um, skilled and I imagine she learned that in her family of origin of how to like speak and mm -hmm. um, and and that self-regulating and so many of the children that I come into contact with don't have any of those skills and it just makes them more at risk. But it's a, but you know, kids with challenging behaviors are more likely to be abused. Um, so like the early identification and keeping them on track and safe and getting them providers to support the family um, is really helpful. And then another <clears throat> protective factor is you were also alluding to is the knowledge of parenting and child development by the caregiver, right? So um, people educating themselves and getting support when they need to and not being an island <laughs> in this whole thing. Um, it's important that information is available, obviously, and uh, awareness and identification of uh, commercially sexually exploited children is something I know that most people don't seek out, but we hope you do because it's important. Another protective factor, there's two more that I'm going to mention. Um, one is social connections. So friends, family members, neighbors um, help build the parents' network of um, support, but they also have a multiple purpose to have 
the children have multiple people that they could possibly go to. Cause you get yourself into a situation like this and then something in you wants to get out. You might not want to go to the parent that you stole money from, or that you have an intense amount of shame and guilt about what you've done. So having a bigger support system or what we call natural supports in place would be super helpful. And then, um, I, parents having, concrete support in times of need which that's difficult um because there's so much stress stress in having a family and when a family is in crisis or there's substance abuse or there lack resources you know building this particular protective factor um is so huge because if a family has basic needs taken care of food clothing shelter then, um, you know, then after that, connecting parents and children to services, um, support systems, uh, shelters, counseling, et cetera, so that in times of crisis, they know where to go. Because when we're in crisis, we often, we our frontal lobes, you know, shut off and we're not exactly sure what mm. we're going to do. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of things to build in our children, in our situations. And then there's... Um, well, there's lots of places uh, to turn to as well then once you're in crisis, then there's um, more places to turn to. And I wanted to make sure to mention the uh, National Human Trafficking Hotline. Mm -hmm. So the Na National Human Trafficking Hotline is 1-888-373-7888. You can also text the word help or info to 233733. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They speak more than 200 languages. Um, there's also humantraffickinghotline.org. It's it's part of the place where I got some of my statistics. And then there's there's several other. There's the polarisproject.org, which is a really useful um, website. And then there's government websites, obviously. I'm sure a simple Google search will get it for you. But the hotline is 888-373-7888. So if you're stuck in a terrible situation, or if you perhaps know somebody you suspect is stuck in a terrible situation of human trafficking or sex trafficking, um, we really advise that you give that number a call and they can send you to whoever is local to you. And we really appreciate you listening. We do. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. And we'll be right back with our What the Hell segment. That's right. We'll be right back. Hi there. Kathy saved me. I almost signed off in the last section. She's like, no, no, we're coming back with our What the Hell segment. I was I'm doing Kathy, our and we're not done yet. <laughs> I'm Kathy and we'll be right back. <laughs> Shannon's insane. All right. So this is our what the hell segment. In case you are unaware, our what the hell segment is Kathy and I both bring a news item that is a ridiculous criminal and we don't do any research. We just think it it makes us say, what the hell happened to this person? And we bring it to the show to give a little we like humor, give a little lightness to the end of the show. Um, sometimes we just enjoy it. So this is our what the hell segment. I'm going to go first. Okay. This is called uh, the robber and the resume. So 
2017, this 26-year-old strolled into the Paddy Power Betting Shop in Birmingham, England. That's so, it's just an English name. Patty Power. It's I awful. Idea. I have no idea what that means, but it's a betting establishment. <laughs> and robbed the establishment using an imitation fire, firearm and a note that they have in a picture of here that says, I got a gun, open the door or I'll shoot you. And I'll is spelled I-I. I, oh. I, or maybe that's I-L. Uh, L. Oh, and it's funny because it says, or I'll and then blast you. And then he crossed out blast you and wrote shoot you. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm pretty much loving that. Anyway, so this gentleman locked the bookmaker's doors and demanded the contents of the safe. The assistant emptied the register, stuffed about 16,000 pounds into a bag. Um, he uh, then prematurely removed his mask exposing his face to the ever watchful the cctv cameras that are that were in the shop but guess what not to worry it will probably take cops you know a while to analyze the footage right so deduce his identity etc like normally that would be a, a bit of a thing they'd have to figure out who he was i mean sure. maybe they have his face but then they'd have to figure it out but sure. then there was a second mistake that made it a little bit quicker. He'd um, previously applied for a job. Oh, God. At the same place. <laughs> and left his resume there. He really had a thing for that place. <laughs> he'd left He's left his resume there. I don't oh know if that God. was. Oh, my God. So, wait. There's more. <laughs> it's funny because this article says, clearly a strong candidate for Mensa. Well, <sighs> he was... <laughs> He was also, he also happened to be addicted to gambling and the store manager recognized him as a customer. He had made bets there before. He, he was um, clearly obsessed with this place, whether it was to rob it, own it, steal it, or work at it. He well, needed to be yeah, there. Yeah, like unfortunately it was just access, right? So he's bet there and he's like, oh, there's a lot of money here. Ugh, what a and then moron. he applied for a job and didn't get it. And then he's like, oh, there's a lot of money here. Maybe I'll, and then just didn't, you know. Wow. So idiot that happened. Good <laughs> Lord. He spent, uh, he was sentenced to six years in jail. Well, this guy's no, he's not any brighter. No better. He's okay. no brighter. Perfect. So this took place in, it's called the deja vu burglary. So it's, it's right <laughs> on the, in the same family. I see that. Um, British burglar made quite the blunder after a say that five times. Yeah. Fast. After attempting to ransack a house he had already visited Darren Kimpton, who was, uh, had a string of prior convictions, stole 85 pounds from a Northampton home. Okay. But apparently, possessing the mind of a lobotomized klept kleptomaniac, which is what they called him. <laughs> I love these writers. Yeah. Our troubled thief revisited the same residence. His return trip was not without incident, however. Okay, so mm. this is funny. So he then enters the property. A surprised Crimpton is met by an equally surprised pair of police officers. <laughs> I bet who are taking a witness statement from the homeowner. When Kimpton reached in through the door that he'd previously vandalized, the cops gave chase and apprehended him. So prior to this arrest though, <laughs> oh my God, this is funny. Prior to the arrest, he attempted to break into a separate property in the same area. He failed injuring himself in the process and leaving behind his DNA on the door lock. So for instance, forensics confirmed that it was him. So his own counsel described his criminal es escapades as clumsy and pathetic. His own counsel. Um, and stranger still was the judge's sentencing. So the judge said the defendant was not a very good burglar. 
literally <laughs> said, in quotes. Clearly. Then the judge sentenced the man to f- a four-month curfew and 80 hours of unpaid work. <laughs> you know what's so funny about these is that they are starting to sound familiar. They are, well, and th- so this is what the judge then says. He goes, were there any sense of professionalism, I would not be giving you the chance I am giving you. Let that be a lesson to wannabe thieves. Act like a professional thief or you won't get jail time. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. It's just like we do these most episodes and I'm start there's They are starting to it sound similar. Like when I was looking for one for today, I said to Kathy, I'm like, there's so much gen- genital shooting. Yeah. Oh, I see yours right underneath mine. <laughs> I feel like, yeah. I feel like there's been a lot of genital shooting in the world because every time I search for like crazy criminals or ridiculous criminals or whatever, people are shooting off their genitals and I'm yeah, like, they, I just can't do another like the one guy on at genital the, shooting. The, <laughs> the hot dog stand, like ha ha. And then he yeah. like shoots himself in the balls. There's been, a, there's been so many of those that I've just, I've sworn Keep off. Keep it out of your pockets, idiots. Right? If like, you don't want to shoot your nuts off, don't put it in your pocket. Don't put the gun in your pocket. Oh God. Yeah. All right then. That's it. So for real this time, guys, uh, this is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.